Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race Podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Apologies for the slightly delayed episode this week. Uh, some major life changes happening for me this week. Uh, nothing bad, just taking up a lot of time. Uh, that's prevented me from finishing editing this episode on time for a normal Wednesday release. No worries, next week we will be back to a normally scheduled episode on Wednesday, reacting to the final nominee announcements coming on Monday the 15th. Uh, in fact, I haven't fully decided if I'm going to do this. Mostly depends if I'll be awake in time for them. Uh, but there's a pretty good chance I might live stream my my reaction to the Oscars announcement on Twitch, most likely. Um, I'll announce where you can follow along on Twitter, um, as well as in the Oscars Death Face Discord when the time comes, so be sure to follow those places. Uh, speaking of the Oscars Death Race Discord, something pretty interesting is happening over there. Uh, the mods of the subreddit slash Discord, including our pal Slight Astronomer from a few episodes back, have put together the Academy of Death Racers. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this Death Race is the fact that, unlike most real Oscar voters, uh, you know for certain everyone has most likely seen most, if not every film in contention, and can speak intelligently about whether these films truly deserve a place from a place of being informed, uh, even if their opinion may differ from yours. At least you know it comes from a place where they've seen everything. Uh, to that end, the Academy of Death Racers will have voting on each Oscar category from an informed place, as well as five additional special categories. Those categories will be determined by branches set up within the Death Racer Academy. The Creators Branch, which I'm a part of, uh, the Food and Drink Branch, the Animal Lovers Branch, and the Indies Branch, um, as well as a special Favorite Film, Different from Best Picture uh, category. Uh, the full details and bylaws will be found in the Oscars Death Race subreddit uh, as well as the Discord. So again, be sure to check those out. Shout out to all of the mods for putting that together. All right, so for this episode, I bring on my fellow creators, branch member, Nakoda Arsenault of the ContraZoom pod. Uh, we wrap up my quest to watch the films most likely to be nominated for Best Picture next week, according to Gold Derby, uh, the rest of the best picture, so to speak. We talk about The Father, which only I'd seen, uh, First Cow, which only Dakota had seen, News of the World, and Judas of the Black Messiah, both of which we've both seen. Um, and then, you know, with nominations coming out next week, I figured we'd have a shot at trying to predict which films would get nominated in which categories. To save time, we just looked at Gold Derby's numbers and made adjustments as necessary. Um, it's a bit of a longer episode as a result, but I think well worth it. Dakota is super knowledgeable about film, and I always appreciate him uh, for coming on. As always, discussions of these films will not be staying away from spoilers, so you have been warned. Watch those films first before listening to this episode, or skip ahead to about the midway point uh, to get to the Oscar prediction category. Um, that being said, without further ado, let's catch up with Dakota and the ContraZoom pod. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. On this episode, we have friend of the show, Dakota Arsenault, a Canadian-based podcaster who is responsible for the ContraZoom pod, a film-based show going in-depth over varying movie-related subjects, both academic and fun, in relation to enjoying the film medium. The ContraZoom pod is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. He's definitely my senpai when it comes to watching film with his leather box clocking in over 1,700 films. He's had me on his show a couple of times, uh, and I'm glad to have him on finally here. Uh, welcome to the show, Dakota. 
Wow, I did not know I had over 1,700 films logged on Letterboxd. <laughs> that's, uh, that's higher than I thought. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, is there anything else you know, in that intro that I might have missed uh, in, in, in that introduction for you? No, I'm, I'm very flattered. Yeah, uh, you, you've been on the show, I think, two or three times now, so it's nice to finally uh, complete the crossover by being on your show. Yeah, for sure. Definitely glad. Now, we met on the Oscars Death Race subreddit last year when I was turning off my show. How long have you been trying to do the Oscars Death Race, actually? And how many times have you completed it versus how many times you've attempted it? I've only completed it once. It was last year as well. It's one of those things where there's always like a couple that I I just end up missing out. I try to catch the shorts in theaters, and that's usually the best way to do it. And if you're not able to do that, then you're stuck kind of scrambling around to find that fifth live action short or, you know, two of the documentary shorts, stuff like that. But as far as when I started it, I feel like I've been doing this for quite a while. It originally started probably about 2009, 2010, where I just wanted to watch the Best Picture nominees. And so I would do that. And, and usually if you do, especially once they expanded it to up to 10 Best Picture nominees, if you if you catch those, you've seen a good chunk of like the most nominated movies and you could kind of like get a better feel for what the Oscars are are actually doing that year. And then after doing that for a couple of years, I'm like, oh, but you know, I also want to catch some of the other ones with some of the acting nominees that didn't make the Best Picture cut. And then I slowly was challenging myself to try to watch a bunch. And even know that it was the what it was called that this death race that they call it until maybe about four or five years ago. And I think there was like an an article where the reporter was talking about every year people try to watch every single Oscar nominee and it is called the Oscar death race. I'm just like, Oh, that's what it's called that I do. So it was just kind of funny that I finally had a title, a name for what I've been doing for like a few years prior to that. But like, I've been super serious about it for probably about, five years now okay okay yeah it's like i'm i'm in this picture and i like it <laughs> so you know so obviously right like you've been watching film for a long obviously like you have a, you have a ton of films on letterbox and like you said you've been trying to do the oscar death rates in some form or another for at least five if not ten years at this point um where did your love for film come from and what made you want to start a film podcast well i actually i went to, to school i went to college for acting i also went to a, a special performing arts high school as well so i've been studying acting for, for a good chunk of my life so that's always been a real passion for me and then I guess I would say I have a bit of a, a face for radio sometimes. So it's just a bit easier now to talk about acting and movies in general because I'm not as good as an actor as I thought I would have become one day. Uh, so I, I sort of transitioned to that. But I've, I've always been deeply invested in, into, into films. And so I started the podcast, I think, I'm coming up to six years now in April, which is, wow, that's it's kind of crazy. Congrats. Hopefully I can get, I can get this someday. <laughs> yeah. Well, I started it because like uh, a different website I was working for, there was another guy there where we were both huge film buffs and like our tech conversations would basically just be about movies and, and that sort of stuff. I'm like, we should probably just do a movie podcast. So we were, we were doing that for a while, although it was, it was much more sporadic. We tried doing bi-weekly, but you know, sometimes it would be like a month and a half would go by with no new episode. And then it's really only been, I would say the last two years where I was very strict with doing it bi-weekly. And then in the last year, ever since the first lockdown started, I was able to transition to doing it weekly. I've basically kept up uh, a weekly episode since then, which was very intense. Yeah, there's a silver lining to all this to this to this lockdown. You know, it's been able to to get into the podcasting groove, basically. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. So you know, what? How would you describe your taste in films? You know, when I was on your show recently, I kind of joked that I I tend to have a little bit more normie taste in films, I think, compared to you. Um, but what what would you say the types of films you like are? What are your maybe favorite films of all time, either Oscar or non Oscar specific? 
Uh, I, I like to think that my taste is, is pretty varied. Obviously, you know, I'm also a big music buff too. And, and I find when I'm talking about movies or music, I, I clearly tend to skew more, not, I, I don't want to say unknown, but, but lesser seen, not as underground. <laughs> sure. We'll call it underground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't sound like a total hipster loser nerd sort of thing. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I like smaller independent movie studios. I, I love A24 and Neon stuff like that. And I know it's, it's it's weird. Sometimes when you're so immersed in, in talking about these kind of movies, I'm like, oh, everyone knows Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Who hasn't seen that movie? And then you bring it up in regular conversation with someone. They're like, what's that movie? I'm like, oh, you didn't see this really tiny French uh, drama about two women that fall in love. Oh, okay, yeah. It totally okay, got right? snubbed at the Oscars last year. Like, didn't get not didn't get like nominated for international. Yeah, film. it was the biggest controversy last year. And they're like, "What movie are you even talking about right now?" I'm like, "Come on, Celine Sciamma, the director." And they're like, "Goes completely over their head." <laughs> but I think in general, some of my favorite movies are I, I, I kind of narrowed it down to about four or five. I've got uh, Twelve Angry Men, The Life Aquatic the Wes Anderson movie that you, you need to watch. I know. Uh, that I've been teasing you on, on Twitter uh, today. Rafifi, which is a, a French heist film, and The Social Network were probably like my big four. Okay, okay. Um, and what about your film watching habits, right? Like obviously with Shutdown, we can't go to the movie theaters uh, in, in, in person, which is actually going to be like a point of contention for me because like I want to go – because IFC Center here in New York's opening up. And so I want to go to like watch all the films that I can't get otherwise that would be there. But now like I'm, I'm, I think I might this year be imposing myself. I have to watch it all online just for – you know, just to be responsible and whatnot. But in any case, what are your film watching habits? Like how often do you watch films and how do you decide what to watch? Yeah, uh, first off, I, I agree. It's super frustrating because normally, you know, throughout the year, I'll only maybe go to the movie theaters uh, a couple times. But then as soon as Oscar season starts, it's like at least once or twice a week I'm at a theater. And there's there's two in Toronto in particular that I'm really sad about. One is one of our big chains, but they seem to only play like the smaller dramas. It's called Varsity Theater. Love that one. And then the other one is... Uh, the Toronto International Film Festival has their own movie theater as well. And it's a fantastic theater. They've got like two really, really big screens. And then they've got like two small screens where there's only like 50 seats. So it's kind of cool being in there sometimes. That's where like, we'll play the shorts in those, in those screening rooms. So I'm really excited to eventually go back to there. But as far as what I've been, how I've been able to watch this year, with all the streaming services have really been making a push because it's like, you know, the studios are like, well, we can't show this movie in theaters, so I guess we'll sell it to Amazon or sell it to Netflix or sell it to wherever. So because of that, I've been able to kind of catch up on more of them. We talked about this a little bit on my show where it feels like it's been a little bit easier to catch up on some of the movies where it's just like normally you have to wait so much longer to be able to see them because you're like, well, you can catch the two week screening window that it comes out, you know, February 1st to the 15th. And if you don't catch it, then you have to wait three months for it to come out on, on DVD or, or on a streaming platform later on or something like that. But this year, it definitely seemed like I was able to catch up really quickly because between online film festivals and everything going to streaming platforms, it was super easy to, to be able to do that. And I find myself now either personally or uh, don't tell these big corporations sharing subscriptions uh, for different streaming platforms. So I've got like five or six now, whereas like I think last year I only had uh, Netflix and the Criterion channel were my only subscriptions. And now I've got a whole bunch more like Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and some others that I'm forgetting. <laughs> you have so many that you're starting to forget, right? So if, if you were watching maybe movies only once or like, how do you get to 1700 films in, in Letterboxd? Is that just like, 
you, know, you said you didn't go to theaters that often when it's not Oscar season, but are you still like watching a bunch at home that are like, like do you watch like a movie every night or do you watch like maybe like once a week? Like how often are you watching films? How, you, how do you decide what to watch? I, I probably watch a, a couple of weeks between maybe two to four. It, it sort of depends. You know, my wife and I will pick some stuff that, that we both want to watch. Uh, and then there's a lot of stuff that she just has no interest in. So usually like on my days off or something uh, from work, I'll, I'll you know, plug in headphones into a laptop and, and watch a couple things in, in the day. Unfortunately, a lot of my movie watching is sort of dictated by what I'm covering on the podcast. For some reason, I sort of give myself far too much homework to be able to do stuff. And I'm like, oh, all right, this sounds like an interesting subject matter. I'll, I'll do that. And then I'm like, all right, what, what movies do I need to see or need to re-see in order to be able to, to speak somewhat intelligently about this subject matter? And I end up having to like create a list of you know eight to 10 movies I need to watch in a given week sort of thing. So I try to alternate uh, my more intense discussions with some more casual ones so like i just did two episodes the second one's about to come out celebrating japanese cinema one about live action movies and one about animated movies and so it was just like a huge list of, of movies i won't want to see i've seen almost no studio ghibli so obviously if you're talking about japanese animation that's the number one thing that you really need to do obviously you know that very well and so it was me playing catch up with a lot of ghibli films that i just had not seen before uh and same with like some classic japanese films you know i've seen several Kurosawa films, but like I hadn't seen any of the other classics or even modern ones as well. So, so just a lot of homework to doing that. And I know, I know I'm, you know, saying this again, my wife would sometimes be annoyed with like, oh, what's your episode about this week? Oh, so this is the only thing that we're watching for the next two weeks? Great. All right. You can watch them on your own. I, I, I totally get that. I mean, I, that, so that's why my letterbox, your friends have been watching recently are full of like anime movies recently. That explains yeah. it. <laughs> In any case. Uh, so I think that's enough. That's kind of setting up, you know, where we are so far. Definitely, I guess like this month, all of our movie watching will be dictated by, you know, the the, the death race, I think. Definitely my, my past couple of weeks have been. And so, you know, this is the last episode coming out before the final nominations for uh, the Oscars are announced on March 15th. We wanted to finish up with all of the top 10, actually top 15, best picture, most likely nominees according to Gold Derby. So the first half of this episode, we'll be talking about that. And in the second half, we'll be going in and digging into the Gold Derby rankings and figuring out like where we agree, where we disagree with what the community thinks about what's going to be there. Basically put our name on the line on how well we can predict what the Oscar nominees are going to be. Sound good, Dakota? Sounds good to me. And just one more word of warning before we dig into these films. These are spoiler fill conversations. Uh, so if you haven't seen any of these films yet, pause, go watch them, and come back here. It's just, this is the death phase. You should be watching them anyway. But yeah. Okay. All right. So first up, right? So uh, this is one that only I watched, actually, uh, The Father. Um, I caught this at a virtual screening that somebody on the Oscars Death Race subreddit posted about. Definitely was was uh, super lucky to be able to catch this one. Um, so The Father is a French-British adaptation of Florian Zeller's 2012 play La Paire, um, which Zeller also was is reprising his role as director and co-writer for this one. Um, the story follows Anthony Hopkins' character as he had to deal with his progressing memory loss and dementia and how it affects those around him, most notably his daughter, played by Olivia Colman. This premiered at Sundance 2020 and it made the film festival circuit about com- uh, before coming to select theaters February 26th and it will be available on VOD 
Monday starting March 26th, so in time for the Oscars. Um, according to Gold Derby, this is currently an eighth for Best Picture, second for Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins, first for Best Supporting Actress, Olivia Coleman, third Best Adapted Screenplay, and fourth Best editing. So, Dakota, I know you haven't seen The Fathers so much, um, but from what you've been hearing about it, what are, what are your impressions so far? This is like probably, other than Minari, which I'm, I'm hoping to watch this weekend, this is like the number one film that I need to watch outside of like the, the big Oscar nominees because a lot of them, like, I, I can't predict what's going to be in Best Documentary, Best International Film, and stuff like that. So this, this is big for me. It, it really seems like the main things that I'm hearing are our best actor and best supporting actress for Hopkins and Coleman. Those two seem like almost locks where Hopkins even sounds like he might even be in real contention to win best actor. I think Olivia Coleman, she won so recently for the favorite. So I feel like the Oscars are, are going to be like play their favorite game of you've won recently. So we're going to give it to someone else. But Anthony Hopkins, I think, is in real contention to win Best Actor. Even, even, even over Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, that, it's, it's going to be very close between them. Is it going to be the Alive Lifetime Achievement Award for Hopkins or the Recently Deceased Lifetime Achievement Award for Chadwick Boseman? That's what I think the narratives are, are basically going to come down to. Yeah, even though I think you know we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, but uh, I, I do think Boseman is, is the one that's going to end up winning it. As far as the other categories, Best Picture, Screenplay, Editing, I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment on it. I think you know, for best picture is probably going to be fighting for those ninth and 10th spots. Yeah, definitely. I definitely feel this is like, you know, in terms of best picture will probably be overlooked, unfortunately, in the long run. Um, but, you know, definitely, I think that the acting, the acting, you know, especially coming from a stage play um, definitely makes the sense why, why those be the strongest elements here. Kind of like Ma Rainey almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know the, the other thing when I was watching it, right? Like, it, it is up for best editing, and I will say it did you know, a pretty solid job at being a very disorienting film when it comes to uh, its subject, which I think makes sense given its subject matter of you know dementia and memory loss, right? Like, there was like I was watching this on Discord, you know, I was commenting in Discord while other people were in the same screening, and we were all just like, yeah, this is just like all over the place in terms of like editing, but in a good way where it really helps with that element. So I think, you know, that's something to look forward to for this film. Um, okay. I don't want to dwell on this too long because only I've seen this one, but you know, you have also seen one of the top 15 best picture films and that I haven't yet. First Cow. Uh, this is from your favorite studio, A24. It's an American drama directed by Kelly Reichard, who is a, which is an adaptation of The Half-Life by Jonathan Raymond. It's about two frontiersmen in the 1820s Pacific Northwest uh, who try to make their fortune using the titular cow in question. It premiered at the 2019 Telluride Film Festival and competed at the Berlin International Film Festival and then won the New York Film Critics Circle Awards for Best Film for last year. It had a brief release theatrically a year ago, the day we were recording this, March 6th, um, after being, and it ended up getting pushed to VOD on July 10th when, you know, theaters shut down. This is currently in 15th for Best Picture and on the cusp of adapted screenplay at 6th place. Uh, Dakota, what are you, school me about the first cow here. I, I really love this. Uh, I've only seen one other Kelly Reichert film and that's Certain Women. I was really expecting this to be the big breakthrough for her. You know, being back by A24, A24 has a pretty good track record of at least getting their movies uh, more well-known and, and seen and stuff like that. And, and it also sort of seems like every you know couple of years, there's a director who gets a bunch of awards recognition in some of like smaller critic circles or stuff like Spirit Awards. And then their next movie, because they have all that buzz from before, is a lot easier to be championed and move on. You know, I look at something like, Chloe Zhao with this year Nomadland, 
it's because her last movie, The Rider, was one that was like really intensely celebrated in the in the smaller critic circles. Another recent example would be Sean Baker, who Tangerine got a whole bunch of buzz for, but never made that big mainstream breakthrough. His next movie follow-up to that was The Florida Project, which, of course, got a bunch of Oscar nominations. And so I was really expecting First Cow to be that big breakthrough for Rikert. And it seemed like A24 was gearing up to really push it. And then, of course, like it came out, I think it was like a week or two before the lockdown, the first lockdown started. And then they just like didn't know what to do with the movie. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to we're not going to put it on a streaming service. We're going to wait for theaters to open back up and we're just going to re-release it in theaters. And so it was just like stuck in limbo for the longest time. And then there was a whole bunch of people that had seen it and they're like, yeah, this movie is excellent. But then no one else had seen it, so they couldn't really comment on it. And then it just seemed like July, they just kind of gave up. They're like, fine, we'll put it on VOD. And I think that really hurt this film's chances because I, I really thought that this could have been uh, not maybe a, a big contender, but like at least one that was in the conversation for, for some of the awards, whether it was like, I don't think it was going to make Best Picture, but Best Adapted Screenplay, really, it could have been there. Maybe a, a Best Supporting Actor for, for one of the two guys in it. I, I had high hopes for it, and I am disappointed it didn't quite break through, but Every time you hear someone talk about it, they just talk about how beautiful and gentle uh, this movie is and just how lovely it is to look at. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely, you know, was was looking forward to this one as well. And, you know, kind of the same thing kind of happened. I haven't gotten around to watching it yet. But, um, you know, at my most recent episode, obviously, I I, I gushed about, like, my my love for Asian representation, Asian American representation on screen. And I was definitely looking forward to Ryan Lee's performance uh, as, as one of the co-leads here. Um, but is there anything, you know, that I should be looking out for whenever I do end up watching this one? Uh, as far as awards, I think screenplay is probably the most likely of them, as as Gold Derby does point out. Uh, but, you know, this is just like a, a very quiet, contemplative movie where the, the colors are very muted in the way it's shot. But whenever there is color, it just brings so much life and energy. It, it's about the, these two guys who steal milk from a cow in order to be able to make these like fried donut like things that they call um, donuts, oily cake. <laughs> and they look so good when they're when they're making them on screen and, and it's just like this little burst of life that everyone in this frontier town that basically are, are living in dirt and stuff like that that's just like the, the most luxurious thing for them and so it's just it also has some very interesting analogies as far as like following the american dream and taking things when when the when the going is good and being thankful for it what you have and all this sort of stuff it's just a very sweet movie where you can't help but like fall in love with it yeah this definitely feels like it could have been in that conversation alongside nomadland and minari right another a24 film about what is the american dream yeah absolutely now, these two films that we just talked about, you know, only one of us has seen is, but we've both seen News of the World, um, which kind of like uh, The Father, I think, is, is kind of like in the running for like the eighth, ninth, tenth spot of, of the Best Picture category. Um, this one's directed by Paul Greengrass, and it's the story of a former Confederate soldier played by Tom Hanks, who makes a living reading newspapers in different towns across Texas as he takes on a job to bring up a young white girl, played by Helena Zengel, who had been taken in by Native Americans back to her remaining white family. Uh, this one was released on Christmas Day in theaters by Universal before coming to PVOD January 15th, at least here in the States, and internationally on Netflix February 10th. Uh, it is, according to Gold Derby, ninth for Best Picture, fifth for Best Adapted Screenplay, third for Best
best cinematography, fourth for best costume design, fifth for best editing, third for best production design, third for best score, and sixth for best sound. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of gave my high-level thoughts about this just now. Dakota, what do you think about uh, News of the World? When I first saw the trailer, I was not really looking forward to seeing it. I was like, oh, this looks kind of cheesy. I'm not too excited for it. I watch it. And it's it's pretty decent. Like I'm not gonna say like I'm, I loved it or anything like that, but it was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. And, and Tom Hanks once again, I keep thinking he's maybe past his prime, and once again puts in a, a pretty good performance. Another one was Greyhound. I was not expecting to like that movie, and I ended up watching it and quite like that one as well. Tom Hanks is never past his prime. He's never past. <laughs> and I know, and I should stop doubting him. <laughs> this this movie was interesting because I don't know if you're a fan of westerns or not, but there's a, a very famous John Wayne one called The Searchers, and I almost feel like this movie is a bit of a response to The Searchers, where it's very similar about, I can't remember what John Wayne's character is. I think he's just a, a guy, not a, a sheriff or anything like that, but trying to rescue his niece who's been taken capture by Comanche Indians, I believe. And then the movie takes place over several years. And by the time they eventually find her, she basically is fully immersed in the Comanche community. She speaks a language. She no longer speaks English because she was so young when she was taken. And so stuff like that really reminds me of the way news of the world works, where we've got this young girl who was at a very young age, taken by the Kiowa tribe. There's this issue where, you know, she doesn't remember her German at all and wasn't in America long enough to learn English. And so she only speaks the native language. And and so it just reminds me a lot of the searchers, so much so that there's a a shot near the end of News of the World where uh, it's taking place in a door frame and the inside of the house is completely dark. And then outside you see the, you know, the beautiful landscape. That is a direct shot from the searchers and anytime you see that in a movie it is referencing that particularly and so so that's why i sort of feel like it's a bit of a conversation a bit of a response to the searchers as far as like the actual movie goes i think it's a little too hopeful with its politics of you know if we all just sit around and talk maybe fake news will stop i i I will say i'm not i haven't seen many westerns i will say for this film like it's not a bad movie. I just don't think it like sticks with me in the same way that a lot of other films this season that I've been watching have um, in some way. Like I think there are part, uh, parts of it that are interesting, right? Like the idea of him being a newsman and like kind of like thinking about, oh, how does information and news travel back then compared to how it is now? And like the power of story, right? Like um, they basically reference like the power of stories to to inspire or or whatnot or, or to, to cause people to act up or whatever um, or how some people say there's no time for stories in this world right and like as like a podcaster who like loves the the narrative storytelling element of it um i i kind of resonated with that to some degree um and then you know this is the whole overall theme of like finding where you belong which kind of cheesy a little bit of an end right um and similarly like also like finding you know i think dealing with your grief you know i think i think this is this feels almost like in a year where Nomadland is present, and just because Nomadland covers those same topics, and even to some degree, like is a Western in in a modern Western, and has like the same beautiful you know landscape shots as well, it doesn't quite uh, compare as favorably. Uh, unfortunately, that being said, you know it has a lot going for it technically, but just not like at the very top of any particular technical category. Yeah, I, I almost maybe would compare it to something like Ford versus Ferrari, not in style or anything like that, but this sort of idea where it's like. A pretty palatable movie that if you want to watch this this movie with your parents, you can all kind of enjoy it, and you won't be like be like hating what the other person suggested for movie night, and and you can continue that peacefully. Based on what Gold Derby is saying, like I, I don't know, maybe maybe they're overrating it or a bit. 
I honestly do not think it's going to end up with like seven or eight nominations. That just seems really high for a movie that, for the most part, when when reviews were coming out of it, were basically just met with kind of like a shrug. Like people were like, "Yeah, it's okay. I have some issues with it, but it's not bad. It's inoffensive, right? But because it's inoffensive, it doesn't make any great." swings for the fences and therefore can't really achieve greatness in that sense. Not a, Again, not a bad movie, but just also not one that's great, right? Yeah. So some of the stuff I, I think it's going to be in contention, like the cinematography, absolutely. You know, any I'm, I'm a sucker for beautiful landscapes. You compared it to Nomadland uh, as far as, you know, this idea of, of ex- exploration and westerns and that sort of milieu. Uh, it has some beautiful landscapes. And, and so I really, I, I think it does deserve to be in the best cinematography conversation. Some of the other stuff, I, you know, I'm just sort of so-so on, like caution design. It's not like it was doing something really fancy. Some of the, some of the categories that seem to be like uh, trending towards a nomination are a bit of a head scratcher for me. I will say, you know, Tom Hanks isn't in the conversation for, for best uh, lead, though. He does like a serviceable job. You know, he does a Tom Hanks job, right? Which is never a bad thing. Um, Helena Zengel actually su- really surprised me. Um, and, you know, I, it doesn't look like she's done a lot of other stuff. I think there was one other film she had done that got some awards buzz when it first came out. Um, but, you know, I, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where her career takes her in the future. Yeah, me too. And I think I think if there's a, a dark horse for supporting actress, I think she might be in the conversation, but she might be, you know, the, the seventh or eighth person. So she might not really be there. Right, right. And speaking of people who are like just on the outside of being nominated according to the Gold Derby, we have the last film we're going to talk about today, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, this is a biographical film directed by Saka King um, and covers the story of Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who is the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, um, and his eventual betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Star- Stanfield. This premiered at Sundance uh, this year before coming to HBO Max really quickly, uh, February 12th. Um, this um, is currently 11th for Best Picture, according to Gold Derby. Um, however, Daniel Kaluuya, um, as Fred Hampton, is f- ranked first for Best Supporting Actor. It's currently 7th for Best Original Screenplay, 6th for Best Cinematography, and 3rd for Best Song, Fight for You. So I saw this one last night also. Um, first off, in the context of this larger race, the fact that we have two Fred Hampton performances, right? Like we have this one here, uh, but also one in Trial of Chicago 7, um, which took place contemporaneously in history. Um, so what do you think of Do This No Black Messiah kind of like at a high level? Yeah, first, is, uh, to plug myself in Trial of Chicago 7, he's played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who I did interview for my show for a completely different movie. But it was definitely kind of cool where he's now really blowing up and, and uh, it's nice to have him on my show. But as far as what I thought of this movie, I thought this movie was fantastic. You know, we get a lot of movies where you sort of have two characters in it's a bit of a rivalry and one wants to be like the other. And, and it really isn't quite for this movie. You know, Will O'Neill, Bill O'Neill doesn't want to be Fred Hampton. He doesn't want to lead the charge. He's, you know, pretty politically indifferent overall, but there's still this really interesting relationship that the two of them have. And I think it works so well. Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are just so powerful with their performances. And overall, I think like this movie more than anything, the, the sort of thesis of it would be, people putting on performances. You see it all throughout this movie of how does one person view me versus a group of people view me and how does a different person view me and what do I want to be seen by them and all this sort of stuff. So there's a whole lot of really interesting dynamics going on between, you know, 
Fred Hampton, how he wants, you know, the larger black community to view him and how he wants his own uh, close-knit supporters to view him in uh, the woman who eventually becomes his partner, how, how he wants her to view him and all this sort of stuff. And of course, it gets even more layered once you start including the Jesse Plemons character, the FBI agent, who, you know, acts like this real big tough guy in front of uh, Bill. But then, you know, in the scenes where he's with the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, he's a completely different person. He's so meek and scared and terrified of the power that Hoover has over him. And it's just such an interesting contrast where everything about this is like, what kind of performance and how do I want to be seen by other people? Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, Daniel Kaluuya has definitely been been on the blow up, you know, the past couple of years. And I think I would, I would be okay with him getting best supporting actor here. I think he definitely was super fiery as as Fred Hampton, and but like you said, so that multifaceted layer to him um, of like his personal life, and you know, especially in the conversation with Dominic Fisback, who plays plays his partner, about like you know giving his life for the revolution, right? But then also uh, what that means to when he has someone who he actually cares about, like a family that he might you know have to raise, right? Like what does that mean? Um, so I think that's super powerful. Well, Keith Stanfield also has been, you know, I, I think this is like a who's who of like people on the come up, right? Like Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Keith Stanfield was great in, in, in Sorry to Bother You. Um, and then, you know, Jesse Plemons, he got signed to be the lead on the upcoming Martin Scorsese film opposite Leonardo DiCaprio. Now I want to talk about you know just the content matter. I obviously like my second episode this season with with my friend Ed talked about black film, and we didn't really have a chance to talk about this one because we it hadn't come out by the time we were we recorded that episode. Now again, neither of us are are black or African American or African Canadian. I guess take our take our opinion with a grain of salt. But what did you think about it like, in the context of the other black films coming out this year? You know, I love that episode that you did with it. I think it was such a fantastic one. He, he brought so many great points to it all. And and one of the big things that you were talking about was sort of like uh, this moment in time where black cinema is really experiencing and, and being able to show so many different characters and different people. And so often in the history of, of pop culture and, and history and things like that, the Black Panther Party has really been depicted as this evil terrorist organization. And it finally seems like after, you know, we're unraveling so many layers of, of police brutality and the way black people in particular and other people of color, the justice system does not work for them. You can kind of be like, start to question, wait, why is the Black Panther so uh, made out to be such an evil organization? What, what's going on? What makes them different than other organizations that they're the ones that usually get all the blame for being, you know, the quote unquote bad guys in the, the civil rights movement? And then you, you sort of think back about like what we know about people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and how at the time, you know, they were hated, especially by, by, you know, the law enforcement agencies and a lot of white America, the way that they were portrayed in the media, that how radical and that they were terrorists and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, you're growing up here in the state, the, our educational, like the civil rights movement, you know, definitely had like, oh, Martin Luther King, good, Black Panther, Malcolm X, bad. So this year with the Oscars, especially again, with One Night in Miami and, and Regina King's film combined with this one, definitely just gave like a different perspective I had never really gotten before. And I guess I'm thankful, you know, for these films for for helping educate me on that. So um, definitely appreciate this film. And, and, and speaking of like Regina King and, and uh, she's like a first time, you know, feature film director Saka King here um uh, no relation I believe is um not not a first time director this is his second feature film um the first one being Newlyweeds you know but that was like over 8 years ago at this point and he's f- mostly focused on short films actually so it's a, he had like a bit of a unique 
style I think to him, right? That that I'd be interested in seeing more of. Um, in particular, I think his thoughts when it came to um inside the car, I think were really well done and, and a little bit something I hadn't really seen before um in terms of, of, of direction. I will say uh he has been fairly outspoken about uh not really caring about the Oscars or the award season. So that may be I think the only thing holding this back this film back from having uh, even higher success at the Oscars uh, since he's likely not to not going to campaign for the film. Yeah, that's tough because that's the one thing where we like to believe that, you know, movies in the Oscars sort of exist in the vacuum that the best ones will make its way to the top. But in reality is you look at the history of the Oscars more often than not the people that end up winning or even just the nominees are having to seriously campaign. You know, we know all about the history of different uh, movie studios spending lots of money on for your consideration ads and screeners and, and stuff like that being sent out to different voting members. But in general, you know, it's going on talk shows. It's, you know, being active on social media these days and, and talking about your movie and having that conversation continue. And if you're not really that interested in doing that sort of stuff, which like I have no issue with that. If, if this, you know, you and I love the Oscars, but we're really into it. But anytime someone says, who cares about the Oscars, it's just, you know, an industry patting themselves on the back. You know, it's really hard to argue against that. Yeah, that is what it is, even if I do end up enjoying it. So if, if you know, Shaka King feels that way, hey, I have no problem with him thinking that way, even though it will, to the detriment, very likely mean that it's not going to get a lot of nominations, maybe only one or two total. The one thing I do think has going for it is because this movie came out so late, you know, we get all the, the Golden Globes and the other award categories and the critic circles that name their, their favorite movies of the year. It missed all of that. And so it's a bit of an afterthought. But because it came out so late, it's so fresh in people's minds. I have a, I have a, a sort of sneaking suspicion that it's going to maybe surprise people and the odds makers a little bit by making a, a last man push and getting probably a bit more uh, momentum than people expect it. Yeah, yeah. To, to your point, right? Like, it, it reminds me of my conversation last week with Ray um, from Real Asian Podcast about, like, yeah, like, as Asian Americans, you know, we don't need these institutions to validate our existence and our and our stories, you know, but but if we're going to want to benefit from the from from having you know this platform of, of film and, and awards and all the, everything that comes with it, you kind of have to play the game to some degree, right? So it, it's like a it's a catch twenty two situation, as Ray put it. Um, but yeah, I, I, to your latter point, um, yeah, I think definitely the, the late release. I don't think this would have actually been in Oscar's consideration if the the nomination period hadn't been extended by like two months because of the pandemic, um, and this would have been in consideration for next year's Oscar. So um, this is definitely, I think, playing to this one's benefit. Which I think it's a good transition to our Oscar prediction time. Um, now, you know, obviously over the – one of the things I love about the Oscars death race is that because we see every film on the uh, on the nomination list, we as a community are probably the most well-informed when it comes to actually how everything stacks up against each other, um, which is more than I can say for uh, what, what Academy voting members have done in terms of watching everything out there. So um, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy uh, watching all of these films. Um, and so I think they'll, pay, they'll help us play a little nice game like like we like obviously we haven't seen everything out there but best picture nominees top 15 tend to make up most of the nominee nominations across most of the categories so dakota i think we're going to go ahead and put our line on what we think will be nominated uh in a little less than a half a week from now when this when as of when this episode comes out what i'm going to do is going to lift i'm going to list off the top five films from gold derby for each category or top 10 for best picture uh and then we'll basically see you know, in the interest of time, rather than us listing everything out ourselves, 
do we agree with what the overall community list is and would we make any changes um you know based on our personal opinion on what we've seen uh we're not going to take into account order here though i will list them out in order we're not trying to name who's going to win the oscar but more who's going to get nominated also you know if there's some honorable mentions where the odds on gold derby are super close or even the same between 10th and 11th place so i'll include those as well uh, again this is focused on what will make it through next week um but also you know give shout, shout outs to film that you don't think will make it in but you would like you know you would like to see nominated uh, even if realistically it's not going to um i know i haven't been keeping track real closely on other award nominations like from the different guilds or critics choice or 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 BAFTAs, so I'm not taking that into consideration. Feel free to correct me if I'm missing anything obvious. Um, and then we'll also be skipping the sword films and internationals since we haven't seen any of those yet. Um, and in the interest of time, we also won't be bemo- bemoaning films that got staffed from not getting on the sword list uh, for those relevant categories. So all that out of the way, so we hop into Dakota. Yeah, let's do it. I think the only thing is, if anyone makes any money off of uh, either of our predictions, I hope we we see some of that money back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not financial advice uh, for any betting purposes. <laughs> um, okay, so for best, let's start off big with best picture. Uh, in first place, we as we have Nomadland, Trial of Chicago Seven, Minari, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, Mank, Promising Young Woman, The Father and News of the World in 1 through 9, and then The Five Bloods and Judas and the Black Messiah are tied at 10th and 11th place for at with 22 to 1 odds each. Um, in general, I think this list is pretty solid. I can't really think of anything that you know would really supplant this. Um, I would really like to see Sound of Metal sneak in somewhere. I'm not really sure what I would take out. Maybe News of the World, probably uh, for Sound of Metal. Um, and saying, and you know, obviously Judas and the Black Messiah and the Five Bloods are kind of fighting for that tenth spot. Um, I would love to see both of them get in. If I had to pick, I would probably lean toward Judas, uh, just because of like you said, the recency bias. And you know, while there was a dream that Soul would somehow make their way in, I think uh, it's a little bit far removed from when it really least to get into best picture though no i i could see it also getting in there somehow um, what about you dakota yeah I, I had hopes that soul would kind of get in there as well i think it's maybe fallen off a little bit it seems like it's a pretty dark horse at this point um but yeah there i i have only two differences between gold derbies they're including the father and news of the world and i'm including sound of metal and judas and the black messiah I really think News of the World is being a little bit overrated. And like I was saying with the, the, the recency of Judas and the Black Messiah, I think that's where it's going to sneak in. Okay, what about Sound Like, why do you think, how do you think Sound of Metal will get in over, you know, what are the other two? You know, I, I think Sound of Metal has a very small but very passionate group of supporters. And all it really takes is because it works by preferential ballot. If a, if a bunch of the voters end up putting it like number one on their list, which I can very easily see, I think it can sneak in there. The father, like I was saying when we were talking about it, other than the, the two lead performances, I really have not been hearing a lot of praise about it. Whereas, you know, Sound of Metal, you know, they're talking about the editing of it. They're talking about the sound design of it. They're talking about the best actor and the best supporting actor and the best supporting actors and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think, you know, we're looking at the best pictures of where are they pulling support from from the different guilds. And if you're getting the support of the sound branch for Sound of Metal and they're all putting it at number one, you know, maybe that's going to be enough for it to, to show up in the best picture list. Hmm, I, I would definitely prefer your list over what we have on Gold Derby. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with your <laughs> list. Uh, okay. 
in, in next up, we have Best Director. Uh, we in order from one through uh, five, we have Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, David Fincher for Mank, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Aaron Sorkin for Trial of the Chicago Seven, and Emerald Fennel for pre- uh, Promising Young Woman. Um, in addition, because Emerald Fennel is at eight to one odds, that's relatively close to Regina King at sixth place with nineteen to two odds for One Night in Miami. Honestly, I don't really have any major complaints here, and maybe that's just like I, I, I probably need to be schooled a little bit more. I would love to see Regina King sneak in there, and um, I could see Spike Lee potentially being like a super dark horse category, but um, I would love to see uh, you know Regina King or or Spike Lee get in there, um, if, even if only for a little bit more diversity within this category. Uh, what about you, Dakota? Well, I think first off, this is you know. We're talking about all these nominees, including the ones who are like just outside the top five. And this is going to be the most diverse best director lineup ever. You know, already there's going to be likely, very likely two women. There's never been two women nominated for the same year. And another person of color, Leah Isaac Chung. So that's really fascinating in the most diverse best director lineup we've already ever seen. So I'm very excited about that. As far as what I think is going to get in, I kind of wish David Fincher won't get in. Bank, I just wasn't very crazy about but it really does look like he's going to get in. But I think Regina King is going to get in at the expense of Emerald Fennel because, you know, much like I was talking about the father, Promising Young Woman really is getting a ton of buzz for Carrie Mulligan. But outside of that, it isn't really showing up on a lot of different things. And so I wonder if Regina King will be able to to sort of harness that energy and propel herself into the top five. I will say for Promising Young Woman, I, I said this on my interview with, with Slide Astronomer a couple episodes ago, but I really feel like that one has, like for some reason, the most public opinion. I, it, it seems like the most the one that most people outside of like just film Twitter is really enjoying the most um, in my circles, aside from also Minari, but I just tend to be running a lot of Asian American circles as well. So for some reason, I think Promising Young Women will will definitely, I think, overperform at the Oscars this year. Next up, we're moving to the acting awards. Uh, so first for Best Actress, we have, as we just talked about, Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, Andrew Day for U.S. versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman in for one through five. Um, I know Andrew Day, you know, like I said, I didn't follow, I don't follow a ton of like, you know, the precursor awards, but I know that she definitely sought up there because of the Golden Globes win that she had over, you know, which was a real surprise over a lot of people. You know, I would love to see Yeri Han from Minari, which I know you haven't seen yet, uh, get in there. Um, I really think she's really an understated part of that film. But, you know, I, I also haven't seen Pieces of a Woman, so I can't really comment on 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 whether Vanessa, how Vanessa Kirby stacks up against the rest of the field as well. And I still haven't seen U.S. versus Billie Holiday. So a little bit less well-informed here. Uh, what about you, Dakota? Uh, I, I saw Pieces of a Woman very recently. Vanessa Kirby very likely is going to get nominated because the very opening scene, it's basically like, 30 minutes of of her giving birth and so that's basically and it's a very intense 30 minutes where you don't realize just how how much time actually passes until it's over so i really think she's going to get in you know and you talked about andrew day winning at the golden globes i can't think of a more hated movie that's been getting award season buzz than that one lee daniels the director doesn't have the best track record and i you know following on twitter and stuff like that people are calling it lee daniels worst film so far and that's kind of saying something i really don't think she's going to get nominated for best actress but you want to know what my my super hot take of who's going to take her place is who is 
Zendaya from oh, Malcolm and Marie. I've heard a lot of people <laughs> say not a lot of great things about Malcolm and Marie either. It feels like fifth place is kind of like a, uh, like a, okay, we need to pick, pick a fifth person at this point uh, for this category. There Usually, you know, every year there's always at least one actor in one of the four that just like comes completely out of nowhere. It could be Sophia Loren for Best Actress this year, where I know she got a bit of buzz early on and then kind of died out a bit. But uh, yeah, it's, this is this is definitely just sort of my hot take of, of Zendaya being in there. I really liked Malcolm and Marie. I think a lot of people were not getting that it's a satire film, and uh, and so it just sort of disappoints that you know it's just about two people yelling at each other. I really enjoyed it, and I think Zendaya was excellent in it. All right, well, I hope, we'll we'll see if I have to watch that for the death face at some point. So, best actor, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, one through five, we have Ma Rainey, Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, um, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Steve Yuen for Minari. Um, so, what are your thoughts on best actor, Dakota? Yeah, you know what? Based on what Gold Derby says, I- I'm pretty much in alignment for that. Uh, you know, Delroy Lindo could sneak in there. Uh, I think. That, perform- that movie came out so long ago. I don't think it's on the radar as much anymore. It could get in there. The Hollywood Reporter, which I also follow for their Oscar coverage, thinks Ben Affleck stands a chance to be the fifth person in for um, The Way Back. Great performance. Okay movie. I, I think what Gold Derby said of Bozeman, Hawkins, Ahmed, uh, Oldman, and UN are, are the five that's going to be. And more importantly, I won't have to watch any additional films for The Death Race because of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Best Supporting Actress. Uh, we have in first place The Father, uh, Olivia Coleman. Second place, we have Yeo Jung Yoon from Minari, which she's been going up the charts uh, over the past couple of weeks. Um, in third place, we have Glenn Close from Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, fourth place, Amanda Seyfried from Mank. And then a tie for fifth and sixth place between Maria Baklova from the Borat sequel and Jodie Foster for the Mauritian, which I believe is also because of the uh, recent her recent win at the Golden Globes as well. Um, I still haven't seen Hillbilly Elegy. I know a lot of people who follow the Death Race have not enjoyed watching it so far. Um, I would say I really would like Helen Zengel from News of the World to get recognized here over uh, Hillbilly Elegy, if only so I don't have to watch it. Um, but what are your thoughts, Dakota? Yeah, I, I'm pulling Glenn Close from that list because I really don't want to watch Hillbilly Elegy. I know there's a lot of talk that she might be the favorite to even win this award, which is, you know, complete BS to me considering how much this movie was just absolutely raked over the coals when it came out. Although Glenn Close does seem to be the highlight of it. I think Maria Bakalova, you know, she started out having so much steam. I wonder if she might fall off a little bit. But for me, I think uh, the one person who's probably going to get in, hopefully over Glenn Close, is Olivia Cook from Sound of Metal. I think she she has some of the smaller nominations uh, from like the smaller award ceremonies behind her back already. And if the acting branch is really behind this movie as much as I think it is, I think that she could be a bit of a surprise contender for it getting in. I would not complain about that at all. Um, what do you make of the whole Jodie Foster, the Mauritian situation with the Golden Globes? That's a, that's an interesting one because I haven't seen the movie yet. I, I do kind of want to see it. It's like it's one that I'm going to put off until I find out if it's nominated or not. She's a very beloved actor, and you know that's probably what's going to really help Glenn Close as well. Same as Olivia Coleman. These are women that are really loved in the in the Oscar ranks. So if Jodie Foster ends up getting in, it's not going to shock me, even if the fact that that's probably going to be the film's only nomination. 
Mm, fair enough, fair enough. And I will say we finally got justice for Nai Nai from The Farewell for last year with <laughs> another Asian grandmother from an A24 film getting into supporting actress. So uh, justice for Nai Nai, uh, let's go Yu Jung Yuan. Um, okay, moving on to his best supporting actor, we have, as we mentioned, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Sacha Baron Cohen for Child of Chicago 7, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, Paul Ratzi, I think, uh, for Sound of Metal, and Chadwick Boseman for The Five Bloods. I think this is a pretty solid list. Um, I have seen some news, some talk that maybe Paul Ratzi might end up not getting nominated, but I think he was really, really good here. Um, I will say I personally really enjoyed Mark Rylance's performance more than Sacha Baron Cohen's in Trial of Chicago 7, um, as much as I really did enjoy Sacha's performances. But um, I, I kind of see that Mark Rylance probably isn't going to get nominated, but I do want to shout him out for really enjoying his role there. Um, what do you think about Best Supporting Actor, Dakota? Uh, first off, it, it's Racy. That's how it's Racy, okay. Racy. Uh, I, I think he's going to get in. You know, you know I, I, I've already mentioned it a couple times. I, I do think there's a lot of support behind him, especially since he does a lot of work in sign language as well. Uh, but as far as like what Gold Derby is saying, I think it's probably going to line up. Uh, you know, if you want to make the argument of Mark Rylance over Sasha Baron Cohen, I don't think he's going to. I just, I just really like, I just really like his performance, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm. They're, they're like the one and two for me as far as best performances from that film. But I do think Sasha Baron Cohen has so much momentum for him. I think it's going to basically going to be like also coinciding with a Borat nomination. Like, he's not going to get nominated for Borat. It's going to be basically being like, congratulations, here's a nomination for two movies sort of thing where they, where they do every, every few years. If I was to switch someone out, I would probably switch Leslie Odom Jr. out. Uh, one of his co-stars, Kingsley Benadier, who played Malcolm X, who I think gave a better performance than Leslie. Interesting. I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I, I think I did like Leslie Odom's a little bit more, um, but I, I, at the very least, I would like to see, you know, uh, at least one of the two get nominated. And I, I don't know. I thought, I thought they were putting King, King of Deer for best lead for this category. They, they might be. Yeah. So, you know, frankly, of the four, Leslie Odom Jr. W- was my least favorite. I know what really is helping him is the final song at the end. And I, that's the one part of the direction of Regina King that I was disappointed on. I wish they had just kept the shot of him singing. A change is going to come for the whole song and not cross edit with what the other three men were doing. And like, I know shouldn't be talking bad about him at all. And I'm not, but I do not think that that Chadwick Boseman is as deserving for maybe some of the other candidates for the best supporting actor. I really think it's the buzz that's going to propel him of his, unfortunate and, and very sad passing. I mean, I mean, he is in fifth place, right? So he would be kind of like the fifth person to get in, I think. Moving on to the adapted, to the screenplay categories. First, adapted screenplay. Uh, first place, Nomadland. Second place, One Night in Miami. Third, The Father. Fourth, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And fifth, News of the World. News of the World probably could be swapped out. I don't know what would take its place. Um, yeah, what do you think, Dakota? Uh, the, the first four, I, I think, are definitely locks to get in. I do agree that News of the World, the screenplay isn't that strong, so I'm not too sure why it's been considered there. You know, I, I often call the screenplay nominations where it's just like um, a, a category where it's the Academy saying, we'd like to nominate you for Best Picture, but you're a little too edgy or too out there for us to really give you a lot of support. So we're just going to throw you a screenplay nomination instead. And for that, my you know dark horse pick would be I'm thinking of ending things. Because it's so weird and so different, 
a lot of people have, have some issues with the director, Charlie Kaufman, who also wrote the screenplay, his work. But I do think it might be just weird enough to get into the screenplay category. And pulling up the, the, the gold derbies for 6 through 8, I didn't include them because they were they were pretty far away. If I'm at first, Cow is at 30 to 1 odds. I'm thinking of ending things 44 to 1 odds. And then the Borat film at 46 to 1 odds. So maybe we get a Borat adapted screenplay nomination. That would be pretty hilarious. But you know, maybe first Cow actually has a shot here if we don't think News of the World has as much love as it thinks as it might have. Best original screenplay is a little bit more interesting. I think actually pretty stacked. Um, so we have Trout's Chicago 7, Promising Young Woman, Minari, Mank, Sound of Metal at 12 to 1 odds, and Soul at 13 to 1 odds. Um, and then Judas and the Black Messiah is a little bit further down at 18 to 1 odds. Um, so what do you think here? I I could see Soul maybe sneaking in over Sound of Metal just because they were close. Um, but what, what would you think? For me, I think it's going to be Soul over Mank. You know, once again, maybe it's just me saying that I think Mank is a bit overrated, but I, I do think Soul has a lot going for it. It's, it's a really well thought out movie. You know, you talked about in your episode of just how intelligent that film is and interesting. So I hope it does get in there and I hope Sound of Metal does stay in there as well. So it's going to be a little bit interesting to sort of these, see this category, how it goes otherwise. But yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah could be a bit of a dark horse. I keep saying this because it came out so late. It really could surprise a lot of people. It could end up with, you know, nothing except for Daniel Kaluuya. Or this movie could end up with like five or six nominations. Mm, fair enough. I think Mank probably will get in just because uh, it's a screenwriting play about a screenwriter. And you know how Hollywood yeah. tends to like like themselves. So we're getting to the technical awards. We'll speed through these a little bit. Um, but, you know, cinematography, we have Mank, Nomadland, News of the World, Tenet, and The Five Bloods. Haven't seen Tenet, so I can't really comment there. Um, anything stand out here for you? Uh, if News of the World is liked as much as it is appearing to be according to Gold Derby, I think you'll get in. If it's not, I think Promise young woman which has a really interesting sort of candy coated look to a lot of it i think would be a, a real nice addition to the category yeah i think that was pretty good i think minari i really enjoyed just because i feel for some reason Oscar people just like nice shots of nature and minari had like a decent amount of that as well so maybe that might be the one to sneak in there um best editing uh 12 chicago 7 nomadland mank the father and then the tie between news of the world and sound of metal uh, at 14 to 1 odds each um I, I definitely think Twilight Chicago 7 is definitely well-deserving of this one just because of the way Aaron Sorkin writes his screenplays and how you know how tightly they have to be edited together. What's really sure about Nomadland? I would like to see The Father a little bit higher up just because of the nature that it does. But in any case, uh, what do you think of, of what should and shouldn't get into here? Editing is usually a great indicator of which movies are the most serious about Best Picture. So if you compare... You know, you get 10 nominees in Best Picture, and then you get five in Best Director and five in Best Editing. Usually there's only about two or three movies that show up on all three categories, and those are the ones that are really the, the real contenders for Best Picture. So it's going to be interesting. That's why I think Nomadland is probably going to be there, because it's considered a real front runner for the award. I haven't seen The Father, so I don't really know a ton about the editing. News of the World, I don't think has, has super great editing as far as anything unique or interesting. I think Tenet, with its forwards-backwards sort of style, is going to make it uh, one to be uh, looked at as a bit of a dark horse. Hmm. Yeah, it is at seventh place right now with eighteen to one odds, so that might be able to get in there. Yeah, I, I don't think there's too much we can we can add to that conversation. Uh, moving on to production, best production design: first, Mank; second, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom; third, News of the World; fourth, Mulan; and fifth for Tenet. Um, I would love to see Emma get into here as well, um, and I haven't seen uh, the Secret Life of David Copperfield yet. Um, um, but from what I've seen, I think it's pretty good. 
this category is the one where I have the most difference from Gold Derby. There's three of them that I think I would switch out, and that's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, News of the World, and Mulan. Uh, just Mulan, I think, because I think it's going to be a bit dismissed, especially the politics behind it, where I think the Academy is going to try to stay as far away from that one as possible. So ones I would sub in, Mangatenen, I think, are going to be there. The other one, Emma, I'm a big Emma truther, and I, and I would actually love that one to win production design. I think it's so gorgeous to look at. It was one of the last movies I saw in theaters uh, before we all shut down. So I, I really have fond memories of Emma, but keep going. Uh, yeah, and then the other two I think that might make it are One Night in Miami and The Five Bloods. I think it's going to be really interesting to sort of see where the, those slot in. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I think, has a ton of support. So that's one's probably going to get in there, but if it doesn't... I don't know how I feel about Ma Rainey's and, and One Night, just because like the way that they're shot is like, very, and even the father to some degree, right? Like they're all very within like one enclosed space. So I don't know how much like production, production work there is in it. Maybe there's more to the category than I'm not realizing. Um, but in my head, like production is mostly like sets and, and whatnot. Yeah, I, I think for, for One Night in Miami, you know, most of it takes place in this hotel room. And so it's very simple and stuff like that. But I think the way it, it does a good job of recreating some of the more infamous things. So Ali's famous fight and they do like the overhead mm, shot, which enough. is a very famous photograph. And then, of course, the very end when um, uh, when Sam Cooke is performing on the TV show and stuff like that, where I think it's just little little moments like that where it might help uh, with the, the production design category. Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right. And similarly related is best costume design. In first, we have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Second, Bank. Third, Emma. Fourth, News of the World. And fifth, Mulan. You know, like like we said, we're both Emma Twoether, so I think we're really happy there. Um, News of the World, like you mentioned earlier, not super complicated costumes. I could see it, right? Like the Native American costume that they had for a little bit. Mulan, like it or not, I think... If even if they are not necessarily period accurate pieces, at the very least are are impressive that they had that many costumes on set, basically. Um, and again, I haven't seen David Copperfield, but I think from what I've seen in the trailers and whatnot, it could have some interesting costumes as well. Yeah, I, I agree about Mulan. It, they're they're pretty gorgeous costumes. I think this is probably the the safest lock for this movie to get a nomination. Uh, but yeah, news of the world, the costumes are are just you know there. They're they're nice. They they fit the movie. They they fit the atmosphere. But they're not anything special. For me, I think I would substitute that with Birds of Prey as maybe a bit of a wild card pick. Another DC uh, Oscar-winning film. <laughs> Along with Suicide Squad, Oscar-winning film. <laughs> uh, speaking of, uh, in Best Makeup, we have Ma Rainey's, Hillbilly Elegy, Mank, Birds of Prey, and then Emma at fifth with 8 out of 10 odds, 8 to 1 odds, and then Pinocchio, which I haven't seen, uh, at 10 to 1 odds. Uh, so this could definitely be in, like another Suicide Squad situation for uh, makeup and hairstyling, which I could see, actually, given Harley Quinn's makeup. Um, what do you think of, of makeup and hairstyling? This this is all a category where you get like a couple that you totally expect, uh, and then there's always like one or two that are real head scratchers that sort of come out of nowhere. Like I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a Swedish film called uh, The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Up a tree and out a window or something like that. Do you remember that movie? Because I don't remember that movie. I can't even remember the name of it. I have never seen heard of that movie. Exactly. Yeah. So so there's always going to be a bit of a surprise with this category because the hair and makeup branch is, I believe, one of the smallest out of all of the branches. So it, all it takes is a few people to be really in love with, with one movie to kind of push it over, over the top. But as far as what you said as being Gold Derby's predicted nominees, 
I'm in complete agreement. Hillbilly Elegy is 100% going to get nominated for this, and I'm going to have to force myself to watch it. <laughs> we'll do it together. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, and then best sound. So obviously, Sound of Metal. Uh, it's in the name. Uh, at first, Tenet, Mank, Marini's Black Bottom, Soul at 17 to 2 odds, and News of the World at 19 to 2 odds. Um, I think the biggest surprise here might be Tenet, just because I know a lot of people were complaining about like the sound balancing issues in theaters for this one. Um, maybe they fixed it you know, before they set it out to VOD or something like that. But I can't imagine that they did that. So not really sure why Tenet is in here. Maybe there's something about the sound that I didn't realize. Maybe it's about the, you know, the backward sound effects that they were doing. Um, I would love to see Soul get in here at fifth place, um, if not higher. But what what do you think? You know, this is, it's funny. Every year there's going to be like one category or one movie that gets the nominations that will get you irrationally angry for no reason at all. And everyone's going to look at you like you're an idiot. For me, it's, get the best sound nomination the fact is that you cannot understand what any of the characters are saying should automatically disqualify this movie from contention at all and uh regardless of all the other cool sound effects stuff that it might do so if it gets nominated i'm going to be pissed off so because of that i'm throwing into five bloods because the oscars love a good war movie and there's no other war movies in this list true 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 so uh we'll see where best sound ends up uh best score we have nine inch nails versus nine inch nails with soul and mank at the one and two spot also news of the world minari and the midnight sky which i haven't seen yet frankly i i, I will say i haven't been paying too much attention to the scores as i've been watching the films uh what do you think uh here dakota I, I love the the nine inch nails versus nine inch nails. They're two of the best scores this year. Uh, the Midnight Sky, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment too much. And because of that, I think maybe Tenet might sneak in. Ludwig Gorenson, who did the score for that, I'm a big fan of his. He does uh, Childish Gambino's music. He did the music for Community. He's done a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm a big fan of his work, and I really like the score for for Tenet. Okay, so take Tenet out of sound and put it in the score, basically. Yes. <laughs> okay okay um let's see we have best original song uh we have speak now from one night in miami uh eoc the life ahead from scene fight for you from do this in the black messiah hear my voice from travel to Chicago seven and turntables from a documentary all in fight for democracy i would just say it's like it'd be a completely amazing move of the oscars if they put wuhan flu in here that would definitely drive <laughs> uh viewership of the oscars just to see if wuhan flu ends up getting uh getting the oscar for this one i honestly don't know what makes for a good good original song i think maybe you as like the the music buff might be uh, better equipped to handle this one this is another interesting category where you can predict half the category is going to be like all right what are the most serious songs that you can think of and those are going to be in there the most political songs in there so, you know, speak now from One Night in Miami, fight for you, Jews and the Black Messiah, turntables from All In, the fight for democracy. I all think they're going to be locked because they're such timely songs and they're really great stuff. Other than that, you know, there's this is also a category where there's going to be some head scratchers. Uh, we talk about, uh, or at least you talk about uh, in every episode, the one movie that you were forced to watch last year. I'm never going to let it go. <laughs> and, and I don't blame you. Uh, that Something like that could happen again. And for me, I think, you know, my maybe crazy wild card i haven't heard it yet just uh make it work from jingle jangle a christmas journey maybe that gets in <laughs> maybe i don't know maybe we get hoover sick hoover sick from the uh the eurovision movie the eurovision one yeah even though apparently yeah, it's not even the best it's not even the best song from the film apparently no that's uh with a ding dong whatever it's called <laughs> yeah yeah ding dong 
all right, all right. I think I think we're getting a little bit off the rails. Luckily, we only have a couple more categories left here. Uh, best visual effects. We have Tenet. Um, pretty seems pretty obvious. Uh, the Midnight Sky, Mank. Which I, what were the visual effects in Mank? Um, Mulan and Welcome to Chechnya. Um, which actually, um, I was really surprised at this one because this is another documentary. But the story here is that they use essentially live acts, live deep fake technology, kind of similar to what they did on. Irisman in the de-aging category to hide the identities of the individuals they were interviewing for the documentary, um, which I find super fascinating. I really hope that one gets in here. Um, but what about visual effects? Again, this is a lot of films I haven't seen in the sort list. So, so what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Mank is a bit of a head scratcher too. Obviously, every single movie, whether we know it or not, including the most quiet drama, has CGI in it. And, and Mank is obviously no exception for that. I think a lot of it is sort of building the world. You know, they'll have like the, the the set of what they're in and then they'll show like the rest of the backlot studio which probably was all cgi so that's probably why it's there i i think that might be the one that might be the odd one out because it has the least amount of noticeable visual effects there's a lot of movies that get nominated in this category that frankly are not very good and i'm actually quite impressed with the quality of for the most part the midnight sky is the only one that didn't get really good reviews I think instead of Mank, it might be Birds of Prey again. Uh, the next category is Best Animated Feature, um, Soul, Wolfwalkers, uh, which I think is the, like, it's neck and neck, I think, between Soul and Wolfwalkers in the overall race. Uh, we also have Over the Moon, Onward, and then in fifth place, Son in the Seep, Farmageddon, uh, 13 to 1 odds, as well as The Crudes, New Aids, at 14 to 1 odds. Um, I have many strong feelings about animation, if you can't tell. Um, I mean, Soul, Wolfwalkers, and to some degree, Over the Moon and and Onward. I could see good reasons for those getting in there. Um, they have like a decent story, um, amazing animation, especially for the first two. Um, the last category, I the fact that it's going to kind of like a default. Oh, it's a kids movie. Let's put the animated film in there. Just doesn't sit right with me. There's a ton of, I guess, I think great animation. I really loved. I lost my body, right? Like or Anomalisa, I think a couple years ago, or like the Red Turtle, like from Studio Ghibli and the French Studio. Right? These like adult, more adult oriented or more mature animated films that end up, you know, that ha- that so that animation is not a genre, it's a medium, right? And I have strong feelings about that. So some other ones I, that I don't think are going to really get nominated that, that, that I really wish would. Um, number seven, Cherry Lane. I haven't seen it, but from the trailers I've seen, it looks like a gorgeous animated telling of like a love story and like a period piece within, I think, Hong Kong. Bombay Rose, which is coming out on Netflix, is like an Indian um, animated film, which how often do you see a, an animated film out of India? Uh, Willow Bees, I think from British, I think might be like an acceptable substitute, I think, for, one of the, for the fifth place. And then obviously I love anime. Um, Ongaku, Ride Your Wave and then Lupin the Third um, are all, I think, amazing anime films. I know people have been, a lot of people have been asking about uh, the Demon Slayer movie, which is like uh, the highest grossing film in Japan of all time. I haven't, frankly, seen the, the Demon Slayer anime. Um, I know it's big for a, a reason. I plan on watching it at some point. I don't, but it, it strikes me as like essentially nominating essentially Dragon Ball for best animated film. So I, I'm not as hot on, on Demon Slayer, um, even if it did make a ton of money. But you know, any of the other films that I just mentioned, I would love to see sneak into the fifth place somehow. Yeah, I often I often rant about this category because while I'm not as much of an expert as you are, stuff like I Lost My Body is truly groundbreaking and, and deserves to be in the conversation for some of the best movies from that year. And so it's always frustrating with this stranglehold that Disney and Pixar have over this category. You know, I, I mentioned off the top of the show, my most recent episode of, of ContraZoom is about uh, Japanese animation. And you talk about the history of, of Japan at the Oscars with their anime movies. And it's 
uh, Spirited Away, and that's it, even though they have a whole bunch of other nominations. And so while Soul is a great movie, I'll be fine if it wins. Wolfwalkers is just gorgeous to look at and the way it incorporates traditional folklore into the way it's drawn and you've got like the three panel triptychs going on just gorgeous to look at really fascinating artwork and you see the passion behind it over the moon looks like an absolute lock onward probably looks like a lock only because it's a pretty weak year overall for animation and then i think the the sort of final one is going to be sean the sheep or uh, the Croods between those two. I actually saw the original Shaun the Sheep film. Uh, it's produced by Ardman Studios, who does uh, the Wallace and Gromit. And they did a chicken run, right? So, I mean, I, I get, right, like, Shaun the Sheep and, like, you know, stop motion, right? I just think, I don't know. I I, I wish they would, especially, right, so aside from, you know, Wolf Walkers, who's like an Irish production, I believe, um, they were just so some of the broader of what animate the, the animated world has to offer. Um, so yeah, I have, I don't have high hopes for the best animated category, but I would love to be pleasantly surprised, uh, especially again, as an anime fan, Ongaku, Ride Your Wave, or even Lupin the Third, uh, taking the, the fifth spot. Um, okay. And then speaking of my song feelings, um, I, on the flip side, I haven't seen any of the documentary feature nominees, but apparently you've seen all of them. So the top five are according to Gold Derby are Time, Collective, Dick Johnson is Dead, Welcome to Chechnya, and Boy State. Um, so school me, Dakota. What do we have to know about the best documentary feature category? Well, I haven't seen Welcome to Chechnya yet, but I have seen the other four. I actually just watched Time yesterday. So very timely for that. Uh, oh, I also haven't seen Collective. So I've only seen three of them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, th- this is a, this is an interesting category because, you know, we talk about the Oscars and it seems like every year with the documentary, there's like a really big one that somehow just doesn't make the cut. And you're always like, what, what is the Academy doing? Why are you not nominating like the one big documentary of the year sort of thing? Because so few documentaries sort of break through behind that niche audience into a wider scale crowd. Of them, four of them, I think, Collective, Welcome to Chechnya, Time, and Bowie State are very likely to get in. The only one that I, I question about is Dick Johnson is Dead. That has some fantastic reviews. I was a little so-so on it. For me, I haven't seen it yet, but every review I've seen of the Truffle Hunters makes it sound like I think it could be a bit of a dark horse. Bowie State, which uh, is an Apple TV movie, is a movie that uh, is both very frustrating to watch and very optimistic at the same time. So it's going to be very interesting to sort of see that one uh, get some more buzz for it. But I I think the top two are really going to be collective and welcome to Chechnya because they're also involved in other categories. Mm, Yeah, definitely makes sense. Uh, Collective for international feature and welcome to Chechnya for visual effects. Um, Mm -hmm. What about all in fight for democracy? That's also in like the sound category, but that's like just outside of the top 10 here. Um, And I've also heard that Crip Camp apparently is uh, somewhat divisive as well. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen both of those. I didn't really care for Crip Camp. I had an issue with the way, like the story about it is fascinating, but I'm not really a fan of the documentary itself. All In is a a fascinating story. It's about the story of Stacey Abrams, who has gotten way more in the news recently for her work in organizing voters in Georgia. And so this movie came out just before the election, and her stock has absolutely grown post-election with realizing all the amazing work that she was done. I think this could be a real dark horse and could get in considering the profile of Stacey Abrams. Yeah, who knows? We'll see. I think maybe it's a case where, you know, Gold Derby people maybe just haven't seen as many documentaries. So there's just fewer people, you know, ranking them within their categories there. So that might it's be the such case. such a wild card category where it really can go anyway sometimes. So we definitely talked about this, you know, a little bit longer than normal, but that's fine. You know, this is a special episode just because of, you know, timing to the Oscars. Um, so going through all of everything so far, um, if we just go by, you know, 
cut off the top five for most categories, 10 for best picture. Um, Mank will have the most nominations at 13, followed by Ma Rainey's at eighth, News of the World with seven, Nomadland, Trial of Chicago 7, and Minari with six each. And then The Father will be in fifth with five nominations each. Um, and then the most, the films with the most nominations without being in Best Picture would be Tenet and Soul at four each, um, uh, tied with One Night in Miami and Pretty Promising Young Woman, who also both have four but are in Best Picture. Um, in addition, you know, all of this, it looks like these would be 29 films total. Again, not including documentary or international and the three sorts categories um, with uh, five per category each. So that puts our total watch to about 54 films this year, which is in line with past years. Um, probably a bit less since there may be some overlap in categories. Of the 29 films that we've listed out, uh, again, excluding the, the other categories, um, I've seen 17, uh, which means aside from the 25 harder to find categories, I only have 12 more to watch. It looks like you've seen 19, so you're like a little bit ahead of, ahead of me here. Uh, kind of wrapping up this episode, Dakota, uh, how do you feel about the Oscar death race going into nominations next week? I'm, feel, I'm feeling pretty confident about myself. I have the ability to watch, you know, stuff like uh, Minari and Hillbilly Elegy and Birds of Prey, Midnight Sky. A lot of these movies are, are fairly easy to watch. I've, for the most part, been putting off some of them. The Father seems to be the only one that's going to be really difficult to, to kind of get my hands on. And hopefully that's released more wide uh, after the nominations come out. I think it's coming out March 26th on VOD. So I think you should, you should be good there. Perfect. Yeah. And because we have such a long time you know, we're, we feel so confident about how we've already seen a good chunk of them and we still have like a month and a half to go where normally you're trying to cram about like 30 to 40 movies in, you know, a month. We basically have a month and a half and we will probably only need to maybe, maybe see like 10 of the really big ones. And then of course, like this stuff, like the international and the docks and the shorts, which is, you know, sometimes if you're able to like buy the ticket where you see all five of the shorts together, it like really makes it easy. Yeah. Have you been, have you been trying to, you know, I know, I know a lot of people in the death face community have been trying to watch all the sorts and, and, and whatnot in advance of, you know, even as soon as they got sortlisted, have you been doing that? You know, it's so fine. When, when all those nominations came out, the shortlisted nominations come out, the, the discord community was going nuts with posting all the links of where you can find them and how you can buy it and all this sort of stuff. And I was just like, you know what, I'm not going to sit through uh, 50, short films just to hope that I can watch the five that I need. So I'm going to hold off on that. Uh, other than seeing Burrow, the, the Disney Plus short, I haven't seen any of them. And until they announce the nominees, I'm not even going to try. Same here, same here. So I think we're on the same page there. So even though it makes it a little bit harder, because I know there are some screenings, I think, that are coming out of, of some of these like that are going to be happening before the nominations are, unfortunately. So um, if I miss it, I miss it, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with it afterwards. So um, all right. So Normally, I ask my guests any films in 2021 you're interested in, either Oscars or not. But uh, your most recent episode, as of the recording of this podcast, is actually us talking about our most anticipated films of 2021. So make sure you check that out. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but is there anything else about this year in general, and maybe maybe these Oscars specifically? How do you feel about these Oscars um, and and where they stand? Maybe stacked up to other years. Well, thank you so much for the plug. Yes, people should check that out. We we cover a lot. I had a lot of fun having you on talking about anticipated movies but as far as the year in general goes i you know almost the, the pandemic was i don't want to call it a blessing in disguise because obviously it's not considering the there are silver linings to it we'll call this there's some silver linings involved in it and that's this you know all these big studio tentpole pictures were pushed back and instead of being like well what marvel movie is going to end up in the best picture race we don't really have to have that conversation even if they are deserving. I love Black Panther. It was fantastic. I'm so happy I got Best Picture nomination. But like 
movies like that, I'm glad that we don't, other than Tenet, we really don't have to be like, well, what best what giant, you know, blockbuster crushing movie is going to push out some very deserve, deserving, underseen movies. And, you know, instead we're talking about, oh, can First Cow maybe make the push? You know, in another year, I don't think it would stand a chance at all. So overall, I think it's allowed smaller films, uh, ones with, with some great messages, some fantastic uh, filmmakers who normally don't get to have their voices heard as much, especially people of color, women. You know, I talked about this best director race being the most diverse it ever has been. And that's the fact that it's going to have two women in it. Like that's, you know, kind of craziness to be able to talk about that, that that's what's considered for diversity these days for the Oscars. But yeah, there's going to potentially be two women, a few people of color in the best, in the best director race, all the best uh, actor acting nomination races they're going to be loaded with some fantastic people of color who we don't normally get to see take center stage so it's going to be beautiful for all that this is not going to be oscar so white this year and i'm very happy about that yeah definitely happy about that and you know luckily we, we don't have to worry about the wonder woman 1984 uh, oh, knock God. on wood uh, getting a nomination <laughs> this year um but yeah and then you know obviously maybe maybe the eternals you know with chloe's it will be able to repeat next year um but but we'll see uh for chloe zhao um okay so you know obviously we've been ta- talking about your podcast throughout the episode but you know if you want to you know let people know in your own words what contra zoom pod is about and where listeners can get in touch with you if they want to follow up Sure. So if you're if you're listening to this, you know, you're probably going to like my next month and a bit. Uh, it's all going to be Oscar stuff. So it's going to be really exciting for that. ContraZoom pod. It's on every podcast platform. That's what my handle is on all social media. You can find it everywhere there. I love Oscars. There's going to be lots of talk about that. You're actually going to come back later when we're going to talk about some stuff. It's kind of similar to what you've been doing for this series. Just the format's going to be slightly differently once the actual nominations come out instead of trying to predict them. If your movie taste as varied as, as mine is, you're probably going to find at least some episodes enjoyable. It's all over the place. And, and whether it's doing deep dives on, on different kinds of cinema that I want to celebrate, different cultures, different backgrounds, or you just want to hear me talk about Wes Anderson, it's a, it's a podcast I think you'll like. So please check out Contra Doom Pod. Okay, okay. Whenever Friends Dispatch comes out and I end up doing my watch of all of the Wes Anderson films, bring me on again and then we can finally settle this thing about Wes Anderson and we can find another director <laughs> that I need to watch all of their films for. Sound good? Okay, I'll, I'll hold you to that then. <laughs> In any case, thank you again, Dakota, for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You know, I'll link to your, to wherever people can find you on. But, you know, thanks so much. And hopefully our predictions for, you know, where what will get nominated will come to pass, you know, in the, in the next half week or so. So um, until then, uh, thank you so much and hope to have you on again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paula. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Many thanks again to Dakota for coming onto the podcast. Like we mentioned, I've appeared on his show a couple times already, and we have already plans for me to come on to talk about some of the Best Picture nominees over the next couple of weeks, as well as potentially an episode about Japanese anime films. Uh, and whenever I get around to it, watching all of the Wes Anderson filmography episode about Wes Anderson. Uh, make sure you check out ContraZoom Pod on your podcasters of choice and on all the social medias as well. I'll link to all of those will be in the show notes. And also, another reminder that you have until next Wednesday the 17th to sign up for the Academy of Death Racers to participate in our own Oscar voting event. Check the Discord and subreddit for that. And finally, I will likely be streaming the final nominees, not to be confirmed, but most likely uh, coming Monday morning, assuming I wake up in time for that. Uh, Again, check Twitch uh, or or check Twitter for where that will be. 
Uh, that wraps up this episode of the Oscar Death Race podcast. Let me know how your death race is going on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on our podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you can leave us a review on there or on Podstation.com or even to say with a movie-loving friend, any of that is super helpful. If you want to directly financially contribute to this show, as well as any of the other podcasts I produce, you can do so on Patreon, linked in the show notes. Um, also linked will be my Letterboxd account under the username NinjaBoy, boy with an I. And again, be sure to check out the Oscars Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Oscars Death Race Discord, as well as the community website uh, you know that we all can track our, our performance on. Uh, for, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. Find his stuff at acompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all of the Oscar nominees or die driving. See you guys. Mm-hmm.